The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leading the Charge to Change the Obesity Narrative, Supporting Primary Care to Improve Weight Management Discussions, Diagnosis, and Decisions. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XZP860. Downloadable slides, practice aids, and other resources are also available. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Jamie Almondoz. I'm medical director of the Weight Wellness Program and an associate professor of internal medicine in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Joining me today is Dr. Angela Fitch, who's co-founder and chief medical officer of Known Well in Boston, Massachusetts, and current president of the Obesity Medicine Association. In today's presentation, we'll summarize core precepts needed by obesity specialists to train primary care professionals to provide better care to people with obesity. Our goals for today are to teach primary care colleagues to reframe obesity as a chronic disease and how this perspective can help them to motivate patients, to understand the role of anti-obesity medication therapies, and to learn practical strategies to teach primary care colleagues how to discuss treatment options with their patients. In addition, we're going to learn why clinical inertia matters in obesity care and how you can expand your reach through primary care to overcome this inertia. We're going to start by teaching through problem solving. We're going to be talking about motivating primary care professionals to better recognize, diagnose, and treat obesity as a disease. Thank you, Jamie. There are not nearly enough obesity specialty physicians to treat the population with obesity in the United States. If you look at the percentage of people with obesity in the U.S., it's about 42%, which is around 140 million people. If we look at the number of primary care physicians we have across the country, we have one primary care physician for every 615 people with obesity. And that gets even worse as we look at obesity specialty physicians or clinicians. We have about 4,000 ABOM certified clinicians in the country. And so that would mean one specialty physician for every 34,000 people with obesity. That would be a very large patient panel and is really unsustainable. So the point here is we need to enlist primary care physicians and others to help us treat obesity effectively. So primary care physicians have many opportunities to address obesity. But what we're highlighting here is if you look at the adults who visited a doctor or other healthcare professional in the past year, that's about 82% of people, 50% of these visits were made to primary care physicians. If we look at the diagnosis of obesity where a healthcare professional diagnosed obesity, it was only about 10% of those visits. So you can see here that that misaligns with the 42% of the population prevalence. So there's a lot of patients that are not being diagnosed with obesity. And this is complex, likely related to a lot of stigma around obesity and around not understanding that obesity is a treatable disease and potentially fear of patients you know, having that diagnosis and feeling as though they are being stigmatized. So again, this is what we have to address so that more patients can be appropriately diagnosed with obesity and primary care physicians can feel more comfortable doing so. Primary care physicians cite that often they feel like they have a lack of knowledge of obesity management, but they want to learn more about it. If you look at some of these comments from a qualitative study of perceptions, attitudes, and behaviors of PCPs towards obesity management, we hear this and see this a lot, especially as obesity specialists when we talk to our colleagues. Something about, I do not have enough knowledge or skill to provide the care. We never learned about this in residency or medical school. I'm not really sure how to approach or broach the subject. Again, this idea that there are uh, stigma and biases, internalized stigma by 
the care provider, but also by patients with obesity. And so how do I address that? How do I bring it up in a thoughtful manner, in a non-stigmatizing manner? So there's that as well. And then there's the comment that even providers don't know which diets to follow. So this, uh, this lack of understanding around nutrition and a lot of confusion out in, in uh, the social media space and other spaces around what it really means to have a healthful diet. Thanks, Angela. You know, I, I think obesity medicine specialists are really poised to play a key role in helping to collaborate with primary care colleagues to talk about advances in obesity management, how they can implement that in the clinic. When we look at data, we can see that obesity specialists typically are, we're early adopters, we're innovators in this space in comparison to our primary care colleagues who may be either more conservative in adopting new treatment approaches or may not be sure how to implement them in their practice. And I think what we can do is help to coach and mentor our colleagues to make sure that our patients get the best evidence-based treatments for obesity that are available. When we look at models for how we can do this, the CDC has a nice training the trainer model uh, construct where we can engage master trainers in coaching new trainers who are less experienced on a particular topic of, or skill, in this case, obesity management or obesity care. And what we can then do is build a competent pool of instructors who can then teach the material to other people, this being other clinicians, not just physicians, but throughout the healthcare spectrum of care delivery, and also to follow up with the new trainers to provide this ongoing support. So what we're doing is we are disseminating knowledge so that others within the healthcare field can create sustainable, viable, accessible, and evidence-based treatments for all the people in the US who are living with obesity. We're gonna move on now to see how words and actions matter. I think it's so important that we foster productive discussions about weight and so that our primary care colleagues can understand the need to prioritize also the diagnosis and treatment of obesity as a chronic and, chronic and complex disease. So let's discuss some of the challenges that primary care professionals pre present to us. Let's, let's talk about two different scenarios that we often see in practice and how we deal with them. So, you know, as obesity specialists, we're used to thinking about obesity as kind of a complex chronic disease that has all of these different influencing factors, everything from environmental, genetic, hormonal, behavioral, but also physiologic. And, you know, we're early adopters, so we understand this and we're positioned in order to help our colleagues to understand the complexity and difficulty that treating obesity really presents. The challenge is there's a lot of weight bias and kind of stigma that exists throughout society and even amongst our colleagues that may make kind of these conversations and dissemination of evidence-based obesity care more difficult. So here's a, a quote from a physician who responded to an online article um, about the genetic contributions of obesity. And so let's, let's kind of see what he said. And so this physician said, you know, if you eat less and move more, you lose weight. And if you move around less and eat more, you gain weight. I wish life were that simple, right? It's a very kind of reductionist kind of overview of a very complex and chronic disease. And when you have physicians and colleagues who are saying you can blame society, the food industry, demographics, or anything else you like, but it's a simple truth and no amount of medicalizing the situation can change the truth, that's, that's really challenging where they believe that these very biased opinions are in fact truth. And I think what we can do as clinicians in this space who understand the complexity of obesity is help them to understand that there's more to obesity care than telling somebody to eat less and to move more. So Dr. Fitch, you know, how would you approach a colleague who express these kind of antiquated views uh, towards obesity as a disease and uh, obesity uh, 
care in general, how would you encourage them to kind of be aware of their kind of stigma and bias? Yeah, well, it's really challenging, right? Because this is ingrained in, in society. And when it's a, a baseline feature of society, you know, it's very hard to do. But I, I think, you know, really sort of encouraging people to, to look at that more broadly, like a lot of diseases we have have a lifestyle component, right? So hypertension, cardiovascular disease, you know, I like to you know, educate people that, well, if you have a patient in the office with a blood pressure of 180 over 100, you know, you don't typically start with lifestyle management, meaning you're going to use a medication to help that patient because their disease severity is so bad that they need something acutely to help. And so we, we think of that a lot in these other disease states, but we don't think of that as in obesity. And that's where that bias and stigma comes in. And we have to really look at it as a disease and, you know, I think kind of compare it to other disease states that we treat because everybody has to work on their lifestyle, no matter who you are, even if your weight is a is a lower weight by nature, right? You know, the life we live in, the world we live in today is very obesogenic and it makes it very challenging for people. So we all have to work on a healthful lifestyle for our health and well-being, you know, not just related to our weight. I couldn't agree with you more. How do you think we could go about educating our colleagues that uh, obesity is a chronic disease. How do we begin that conversation with another healthcare professional? Yeah, I think just, you know, sort of saying that, right? That did you know obesity is, has all these factors of chronic disease, right? Genetics, environmental, you know, behavioral factors, but all of these things come together with in interplay with the environment and have shown that, you know, we really do have a disease state. And many times I say, you know, you know, we have patients that are really, you know, having healthful lifestyles and still struggling with obesity. And that's where it really is a disease, right? When you have a patient coming in saying, I'm, I'm following this, you know, this plan, this eating plan, I'm doing this, these, the, I'm doing physical activity, you know, this much every day, and I'm still having struggle losing weight. That's where I really say, wow, you know, obesity really is a disease, right? Because they're doing these things and it's not being uh, helpful. Absolutely. I think, you know, lifestyle is always a foundation for treating obesity. But for so many of our patients who are living with chronic obesity and severe obesity, it may not be enough to get them to a healthier weight or to treat some of their conditions. How, how can we encourage our primary care colleagues to look beyond the lifestyle interventions that while they're the foundation, they may not be sufficient? Yeah, and similar. So, right, as I said, with that patient that came in, you know, I think we have to you liken it to other diseases like diabetes and, and other types of treatments that we have, cardiovascular disease, you know, where we say, hey, you know, lifestyle is helpful. If you look at the data, I try to go back to the data. The data shows that with lifestyle interventions, this is really intensive behavioral therapy, right? With with weekly, you know, follow-up with dietitians and health coaches and, and even going to uh, training classes, physical training classes, right? You know, with all this intensive behavioral therapy, we still only get about 5% of patients. If you look at the science, if you look at that data, only about 5% of people are able to lose 20% of their weight. That's not because the other 95% of people are are somehow weak-willed or something. That's because the other, that's just how good the treatment is of lifestyle intervention on obesity. It's not very good for obesity, right? I mean, it's only a 5% of people. When patients come in, they tell me, I lost 20% of my weight with Weight Watchers. I'm like, you're one of the 5%. And they like, you're like, really? Because I thought everybody did that, right? Because there's this misperception that everybody does that, right? And so again, I think 
really sort of sharing that science, right? That, that yes, lifestyle is a treatment, but it's just not very effective when it comes to treating obesity. Maybe good for prevention overall in the long run, but for treatment, it really isn't that good of a treatment, unfortunately. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we need to kind of get beyond conflating a healthy behavior with a weight reducing behavior so that we can get our patients the right treatments that they need. It's an excellent way to put it. I love that. So we're going to share two frustrating, you know, patient care scenarios so you can sort of, you know, understand what um, your uh, colleagues might, you know, be feeling, right, as, as these patients come in. And maybe you can relate to them. And the idea would be to sort of, you know, how we would teach primary care physicians, you know, how to how to deal with this issue because it does come up. So, Jamie, let me give you another scenario, right? What do you say to a PCP who expresses frustration with a patient with obesity who doesn't consider their weight to be a concern or issue? Because you and I are kind of spoiled a little bit or our obesity colleagues are kind of, we're all kind of spoiled as obesity physicians because we like get people who are motivated usually coming to see us, right? But our PCP colleagues have a range of patients in front of them, some of which may be motivated to make a difference in their weight, but others that might be patients that might be sort of, again, stuck in this idea that, that I can't do anything to fix it because I've tried all these things for the past 30 years and nothing has really been helpful and they get kind of hopeless and frustrated. Absolutely. You know, this can be a really challenging situation. I agree. We're spoiled. When people come to our office, they're seeking weight management. Whereas if someone's coming into a primary care office, they may be there for a medication refill or uh, some other completely unrelated issue. And all of a sudden, their primary care provider may be bringing up their weight. And I think how that's done may be challenging. It may be, hey, I just realized your BMI is in a very high category and they may use pejorative terms like morbid obesity or things that can really start the conversation off on the wrong foot if you will and i think it's important that we ask our or encourage our primary care providers to approach this with respect with for their patients to ask permission to talk about their weight to use non-judgmental terms and language but also to assess well do the, does the patient perceive their weight to be a problem for their health to frame the association that while you may have what we call healthy obesity, you may not have any cardiometabolic complications, that's typically what we mean by that, but that's fewer than 10% of people who are living with obesity. Long-term data show that over the next five years, about a third of people with metabolically healthy obesity will develop a complication during that time frame. And I think we need to move beyond looking at obesity as something that's just a cardiometabolic risk factor or disease component where we're saying, hey, you know you could get diabetes and hypertension. There are biomechanical challenges. Many people have a lot of joint pain, obstructive sleep apnea. Women may have urinary incontinence. There are a lot of things that impact quality of life, but beyond that, there is this kind of psychosocial challenge that obesity brings is this bi-directional relationship between obesity and mood disorder, but then also the stigma that people face from society and even from our healthcare colleagues in general when they seek care for obesity. So what I would encourage our primary care providers to do is to talk about obesity in terms of health, talk about what people's long-term health and functional goals are and how achieving a healthier weight might support their goals. Because by reframing this as something that is not just a ratio of height to weight that has all of a sudden flagged up in the electronic medical, electronic medical record as something that needs to be addressed, I think we're gonna show patients that we care more about them and that it's not about the number on the scale, it's about their health and their quality of life. 
And I think that's very important, you know, for sure. Um, that's really a, a huge issue, especially with the body positivity movement, uh, you know, and it's important for everybody to not have bias and stigma around their weight and, and embrace a, a positive body positivity. But that doesn't mean necessarily that that patient doesn't want to change it too. They need to know it's okay to be positive about their body, but also okay if they want to try to change it. Um, and that's where I think, you know, there's a fine line to walk there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to be aware that we serve a diverse population of people and diversity is increasing across the U.S. And knowing that there are certain social cultural norms with regards to what is a healthy or appropriate or desirable body shape and size and making sure that we use appropriate language and that we approach this in a culturally congruent way to make sure that we're framing the right kind of conversation and not causing our patients to avoid future healthcare encounters. So how about we talk about what would you advise a PCP who prescribes lifestyle modifications to people with obesity, but then they're frustrated that they're not seeing greater magnitudes of weight loss than the studies would show. I mean, this happens all the time. What, what, how do you approach this? Again, I approach it, as I said earlier, with you know, education, right, around the science, right, what we know of the outcome studies. Because we don't really, the, the problem with um, obesity is that data isn't really out there, meaning everybody thinks they lose 15 to 20% of their weight with a lifestyle intervention when that data shows it's about, you know, 5 to 10% of people that are capable of doing that. And that's not because there's something wrong with, you know, that the other people are doing something wrong. It's just the treatment effect, Right? It's just the ability of that treatment, that intervention, to deliver that result. And we have to level set these results for everybody, right? Because society has, you know, ingrained in this diet culture that if you just, you know, try harder, you just work harder, you just do something more restrictive or more, you know, intentional, that you will be one of those people that gets into that 15, you know, to 20% category. The other issue we have, right, all along is that patients are very misaligned because patients, even a patient I saw yesterday was like, you know, wanting to lose like 50% of her weight, right? Because the patients want to go back to a number that's, that's usually fairly significantly unreasonable and frankly unattainable, even with, you know, surgical and other more significant interventions, right? So we have to always sort of do that expectation level setting, I think, to share with not only our, our colleagues, but to share also with our patients because the world feels this way. So if the world feels this way, then the vast majority of clinicians who are part of the world, right, are also gonna sort of think that way, right? So it's changing that expectation and changing that level setting and education on the science of what we know now about the treatment of the disease state. Absolutely. You know, obesity care shouldn't be about trying to get to a BMI of under 25. I think we should really focus in on the quality of life and the health of our patients, right? Right. And I think, you know, what our data would show, too, is if we can get into these 15 to 20 percent weight loss categories, it does afford more disease remission, such as type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease. You know, other diseases can be, you know, diabetes prevention, you know, can be at 5 to 10 percent weight loss. But sort of educating people about these these categorical weight loss goals, because even a patient who you know, maybe weighs um, 300 pounds, but they have no issues, you know, like you mentioned, you know, is sort of a person with metabolic healthy obesity, they may be concerned about preventing diabetes. So that only has to have a, a five to 10% weight loss to do that. So that 300 pound patient 
patient doesn't need to get down to 150, right? They they could they could very well be very satisfied with you know their goal being that disease prevention. Absolutely. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to how we encourage timely and appropriate action for obesity care. You know, diagnosis is the first step, um, but like the data you presented, uh, primary care professionals may not be diagnosing obesity uh, in, in, in a consistent uh, manner in their uh, clinical encounters. And what we're looking at is how can we do this to motivate and support patients to achieve a healthier weight that's consistent um, with chronic disease management approaches. So again, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lack of prior education on obesity management. So, you know, we should never blame our colleagues, right, for not understanding this. We have spent significant time ourselves in understanding the disease state as specialists. And so again, we really want to, um, you know, encourage our, our, our colleagues to learn more about the disease state. So here are some comments that PCPs have said about obesity management. You know, they're not really sure on how to approach or broach the subject, as we mentioned without offending the patient? How do they do that in a non-stigmatizing fashion? You know, I like to say things like, um, I'm concerned about how your weight may be affecting your health. Is that something you'd like to talk about today? Is that a concern of yours? Because again, understanding where patients are coming from is a critical piece of how to move forward. And then another thing that primary care providers say is that even providers don't know which diets to follow. Again, there's a lot of nutritional confusion out in the world. So my my key thing is to say you know it's really all about planned portions of plants and protein we should be eating plants and protein every three to four hours throughout the day and it really is i mean it all comes down to the same when you look at all this all the different diets and all the different healthful diets right it's about whole foods and eating plants such as vegetables and fruits and protein and then you know the other thing that clinicians say is again they don't have enough knowledge or don't have enough time and time is critical for all of us i mean none of us have enough time that's just you know one of our issues but i think you know really trying to encourage them to chunk it up right so that they can address this in little pieces and not trying to bite off the whole thing at once but all of these comments are really you know reflecting a fundamental lack of knowledge so that's where uh, we really have to help people in order to you know improve that Absolutely. You know, I, I love how you kind of talked about kind of how to initiate the conversation around weight. I think there's so many uh, resources available that can help to guide our patients uh, towards how to ask permission, how to frame the conversation around weight, around their health, for example. Um, what kind of tips do you have about what primary care providers should do to approach lifestyle modification with their patients. I think, you know, you highlighted that they often don't feel empowered to do this. What, what kind of tips and tricks would you give uh, your primary care colleagues about this? Yeah, as I said, you know, my biggest one is that what I call the peas, right? Because it's all peas, you know, planned portions of plants and protein, right? I mean, all nutrition, healthful nutrition sort of centers around that Mediterranean lifestyle, you know, you name it, right? It's about having these planned portions of plants and protein. I think too often we make it too complicated, right? With macros and how much of this, how much of that, you know, people are seeing this even and doing it, you know, on online on applications and other things they're using on their phone, right? So again, I think just getting back to basics is key. And with physical activity, you know, it's really about where are you now, right? What are you doing right now? 
because you also don't want to assume they're not doing something. That's the bias and stigma, right? To assume that patient in front of you that's living in a larger body is not being physically active is something you don't want to do, right? Oh, could you consider taking a walk? But they're already running like 5K, you know, um, uh, twice a week, right? So again, really sort of seeing, you know, where are they at? And could they, you know, the patient, you know, come up with something they could improve upon in that, in that sense? I love that patient-centered approach, and I would suggest one additional P, and it would be practical. I think so often providers make suggestions to patients that are just outside the realm of possibility, either because of time, resources, including time, or physical limitations for our patients living with severe chronic obesity, that it's really not practical to institute something. And a plan that a patient can't do is not really a plan, right? And so how, how would we begin the discussion around the use of anti-obesity medication strategies for maybe a primary care provider who may be reluctant to prescribe these? You know, we hear these conversations all the time. They're dangerous. They don't work. How, how do you begin that conversation to get over the, that inertia or bias against AOMs? Yeah, so that's a big one, right? Especially as we've had more and more awareness. So the awareness has been good for us all, like the awareness of treating obesity as a disease, but it also comes with some of the, um, you know, the negative things, right, uh, that are coming into social media and other places. So again, I think, you know, reassuring that a lot of our data, going back to the science, you know, that this is a chronic disease like hypertension, like diabetes, like cardiovascular disease, where medications are needed, right, in order to treat the disease state, in order to get a better outcome. You know, nobody wants to take a medication. That's what I tell patients all the time or clinicians I'm teaching, you know, is as a patient, I don't want to take a medication. As a patient, I don't want surgery, but I might need those things, those tools, if I want to make my outcome different, right? Because to do the same thing over and over again with, you know, to assume that this patient's been trying lifestyle modification for years and not being sick, you know, not seeing that, not getting into that 15 to 20% weight loss category that they want to get to, then how are we going to get them there, right? We're not going to get, it's not going to be something magic about the next time, right? We need to initiate an, an intervention such as, you know, medication and or surgery in order to get to that goal. Absolutely. And I think we, I love the concept of using these medications and other advanced therapies for treating obesity as tools. And I think for for so many people, patients and healthcare providers who don't see the benefits of adopting this are really incorporating these implicit biases about obesity. Some may say, well, why would I give Mrs. Jones uh, a medication or a surgery if she's not going to change? And again, it's these biased assumptions about people, their motivation, their desires. I think what we need to do is encourage people to provide evidence-based therapies for their patients and to encourage them and to support them because people don't fail, treatments fail. And I think it's important to us, for us to acknowledge that there's a lot of variability in terms of how people will respond to any intervention, be it a lifestyle modification, be it a medication or a surgery. And so that healthcare providers need to understand that variability so that when a patient comes back and they have not had a weight reduction that's in line with what the provider thinks, that there's not further stigmatizing conversations that really are going to impact a patient's desire to seek help again for their weight or their obesity. And something that comes up a lot, right, is also the, um, like, you know, I have to take this medication forever. 
and you know, or for my lifetime. And again, you know, that's something we we see with other medications too. So to think that it's different for obesity is also part of that bias and stigma. So that's one key area that we um, you know have to start have to address with our with not only our colleagues but also our patients. So let's talk a little bit about starting the conversation. By the time patients see us as obesity specialists, as we mentioned, you know, they have likely tried a lot of different things, and so they're desperate for help. You know, so patients present late to us with severely elevated BMI sometimes. I mean, a little bit less lately because of all of the, um, you know, the awareness of obesity as a disease. But still, you know, we're really trying to do this training here today and to, so that we can learn how to train our primary care colleagues on how to treat obesity more effectively so that they can then you know, go forth and be able to focus on obesity treatment in their practices such that then you know, we can, as specialists can treat those patients who, who may have uh, more needs or more issues that aren't responding to the, to the initial intervention. So we're gonna start by talking about a case. I love a case. So this is Nora McElhenney. She's a 64-year-old lady uh, who presents to the office. She has a past medical history significant for type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and osteoarthritis in her knees. She also has some depression. Five years ago, she underwent sleeve gastrectomy for weight loss. She's coming to see us uh, because she's tried multiple medications before for managing weight, including Orlistat that caused her some diarrhea, and Lorcaserin that was then taken off the market. She regained nearly all of her weight that she's lost since bariatric surgery, and she feels that she really doesn't have any treatment options right now. Her primary care doctor knows she needs an AOM, but doesn't quite know how to initiate the conversation. So let's meet the patient where she's at. Currently, her BMI is 50. Uh, her current body weight's about 320 pounds. Uh, if we look at her labs, they show that she has type 2 diabetes that's not very well controlled with a hemoglobin A1C of 8.9%. Blood pressure is elevated to the higher end of desirable, 138 on 89. And with regards to her lipids, they're okay. <laughs> they're not the best, but they're okay. And she's on treatment for them with a torvastatin. Her diabetes is being managed with glomepiride, four milligrams a day. Uh, her blood pressure is being controlled with losartan hydrochlorothiazide, but she's on some other medications as well, duloxetine, uh, likely, due for, likely for a combination of things, perhaps her depression and maybe uh, some chronic pain from her OA, also the gabapentin and ibuprofen. And so the, there are lots of different things going on here uh, with Ms. McElhenney, I think, that we can talk about uh, from a medication management perspective. I think, you know, when we look at the diabetes, for example, what we have is somebody who, well, first off, her diabetes isn't incredibly well controlled with the A1C of 8.9%, but she's on glimepiride and sulfonylureas or other medications that either make us secrete insulin or our insulins themselves really promote weight gain and looking at how can we promote the use of medications that don't just facilitate uh, healthier body weight for our patients with diabetes, but are known to decrease cardiovascular risk for people living with diabetes, such as GLP-1 receptor agonist, SGLT2 uh, inhibitors, or even something uh, like metformin, which helps patients to lose weight and can help to facilitate a whole bunch of lifestyle and healthy weight changes uh, beyond uh, just glucose control. When we look at her medication regimen as well, there may be opportunities to manage her depression with medications that may help her 
to lose weight or to um, modify some dietary uh, or eating patterns. And also, I, I want to highlight that the use of ibuprofen in somebody with a history of gastric sleeve is probably not a great idea due to the risk of ulceration too. So, Ms. McElhenney, I think there's a lot of different things that we can talk about with her primary care provider to help kind of have a more holistic approach to someone who's living with obesity, someone who's experienced weight recurrence after bariatric surgery, and then also someone who could benefit from cardiometabolic risk optimization as well. She's tried some medications before and really has not had the best response from Orlistat, um, which is not surprising uh, given, you know, especially for someone with history of bariatric surgery who may be at risk for nutritional deficiencies, to give them a medication that could potentially induce steatorrhea may not be the best selection. Unfortunately, with Lorcashin being removed from the market, I think that increased some providers' kind of reluctance to um, prescribe anti-obesity medications and almost reinforce their thoughts of, I knew these were dangerous. And I think what we need to do is help people to understand that not only are anti-obesity medications effective in terms of weight reduction, but when we select the right medication for the right patient, such as, for example, a GLP-1 medication for someone living with diabetes, not only can we help them to lower their body weight to a healthier range and treat the bariatric weight recurrence, but we can also help to optimize the glycemia and help to decrease cardiovascular risk. Do you have any other thoughts, Angela? I think the key too, you know, as you mentioned, is to, you know, teach the PCP, right, that um, it's okay to, the first thing we should address with Nora is that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, she didn't fail, the treatment has failed, right? Or the treatment, there's been a recurrence of her disease because it's a chronic disease. Just at first really level set it and say, hey, you know, this is where you are today. This treatment for you was not as successful as you would like it to be. And the disease is chronic, so we need to treat it with more treatment today. And to emphasize to the primary care physician, because I get this question a lot, right? I'm sure all of you do too, that um, is it okay to use these medications in people who've had surgery? There's somehow also, you know, a lot of, even though surgery has been around for a long time, there isn't a lot of um, comfort even in the primary care space with treating patients who've had surgery. While we treat patients all the time who've had, you know, cholecystectomies and, you know, other types of surgeries that have sometimes some side effects from them long term, you know, we're, we're, we're somehow scared, if you will, of bariatric surgery because it's kind of one of these things, you know, that we don't know a lot about. So really educating people that, you know, using medication in patients after surgery is 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 something that is um, very effective and actually indicated. Absolutely. Our next case is going to highlight something that's come up um, more recently. We have a patient here who's a 35-year-old woman with a BMI of 33. She has an A1C of 5.6, so she's kind of inching up on there on the prediabetes. Her blood pressure is a little bit elevated, and she's had asthma since childhood. You can see she's on multiple inhalers and maybe even taking you know, prednisone or some other, you know, weight promoting effects of medication that may also be a challenge for her. She comes into the primary care physicians because she saw an ad on social media for a new clinic offering low cost version of a GLP-1 receptor agonist. She noticed that the drug has the same generic name as a prescription drug that's been in short supply. For example, semaglutide. And she asked the PCP if they're the same thing. The PCP doesn't know and called you. What do you tell the PCP? Oh gosh, you know, this is a challenging one. So many people are coming to the office um, having been offered this by perhaps someone at a medical spa or they may know a friend who is uh, taking a compounded version of what on one hand 
is an approved uh, molecule for treating obesity. But on the other hand, no one really knows what's coming out of these compounding pharmacies or other offices that may be selling uh, these uh, so-called uh, salts of um, GLP-1 agents. And I think it's really challenging when we have a situation where someone is coming in seeking evidence-based obesity care, but what they're asking about is not necessarily evidence-based obesity care of something that has been rigorously tested in a clinical trial, and no one really knows where it's coming from. And so I would start the conversation with a primary care provider about, well, you have a patient who's motivated to treat their obesity. This is great. I think sometimes healthcare providers may feel that people who come into their office with obesity may not necessarily want or need treatment uh, for their obesity. And this is great. You have a motivated patient and talking about all the treatment options that are available to them, starting with the foundational lifestyle modification, but using and augmenting the treatment of their obesity with tools. And with Ms. Carnes, for example, her BMI does not meet criteria for bariatric surgery. So we can talk about the wealth of anti-obesity medication therapies that are available, um, looking to see does she have coverage for FDA-approved treatments uh, for uh, her uh, obesity, and then what other options may be affordable to her within her coverage and her budget. It's very important, right? And I think right now it just highlights that so many patients are looking for help, and there's been more and more and more attention you know, via uh, things on social media, for better or for worse, you know, around um, treatment of obesity. And it's important for us to educate uh, the clinicians because many people don't understand that these products that are out there that are sort of, um, you know, lookalikes aren't necessarily the real thing. And, you know, to have these people injecting stuff into them that they don't even know, you know, what it is, is pretty alarming, you know, but yet at the same time, there's this, it just shows for the uh, interest in the demand for um, access to these treatments. People may not have access, they may have um, issues with insurance coverage, you know, we can always also refer them to other types of assistance programs or for some of our medication, you know, we use, uh, you know, different types of plans that can help people get discounts if they don't have coverage. But again, ultimately, you know, we're looking at the patient and I think it's an opportunity to educate them that while you want to help them, you can hopefully find some alternatives that are cost effective, that they won't have to turn to something that, that is, is questionable in nature and not FDA approved. So the next uh, part we're going to focus on is how it's up to you to be the change, as we talked about earlier. And so how can we encourage our primary care colleagues to deliver better care to people with obesity? Please download the baseline survey and self-reflection worksheets now if you haven't done so already. These are included um, as part of our course. The writing may seem hokey a bit, right? But, you know, writing things down and, and, and doing these um, surveys, but it's important because it's important so that you can understand what you're going to have to teach your primary care colleagues. After their conversations with you, your primary care colleagues are more likely to remember to follow through on their good intentions if they write them down. So we're going to do this exercise, but the idea is you're going to teach the, pri the primary care clinicians are going to do this exercise as part of the course that you could potentially uh, set up for them. And so again, as Jamie mentioned, the CDC training of the trainers model, that's what we're doing here today, right? And surveys and self-reflections are an integral part of this training the trainers teaching model, which is used to improve education on a broad range of topics. And we're sort of implementing that here today, right? We're, we're training you as instructors. Um, and so again, the idea is that we will be able to have all of us go out into the world and train our primary care colleagues. So the goal here is increasing the number of clinicians 
who can deliver effective obesity care through this approach. So the idea is to watch obesity master trainers provide guidance to PCP. So that's going to be you all once you're uh, master trainers, right? You're going to provide this guidance to PCPs. The PCPs will learn how to, uh, you're, today you're going to learn how to explain obesity science and standards of care to PCPs. So we're going to, that's what we've been talking about today is how to teach the primary care physicians how to do this, clinicians how to do this. And then to practice, to put what, you, put what you've learned to work in your own practice. So, you know, how can you go out and uh, use this model that we're doing today so that you can train our primary care uh, workforce, you know, in terms of, um, you know, having better access and better treatment for our patients with obesity. So it starts with an action plan here. And so first we're going to prepare. We're going to collect or develop resources to support obesity care for your practice area. So you're going to collect and develop resources through these worksheets we're doing. You're going to invite primary care colleagues to participate in a training workshop. So after we go through this training, the idea would be you'd go out and set up one of these workshops for uh, your primary care colleagues in your community. Um, you would administer the baseline survey to the participants and then to prepare for the classes you teach. You'll compile a list of resources first and then invite the colleagues, right? So the idea here today is for you to sort of come up with this list of resources so that you can, um, you can uh, move forward you know, with one of these training sessions. So if we talk about being the change, you know, how do you, do you use the PCP baseline survey? The Obesity Specialist Baseline Survey assesses your comfort with teaching your PCP colleagues. We're looking forward to seeing how you responded. Before you teach your classes, the first thing you will do is to assess your PCP's colleagues' comfort and competence in managing people with obesity. It's important for any of us to know where our, our where you know where the students we are teaching, for example, you know where they're coming from and what their baseline um, knowledge is. The baseline survey collects and organizes information in a way you can use to focus your teaching. It assesses perceived skill in managing obesity, professional attitudes toward obesity management, and challenges, as we've discussed already, that they probably face in delivering obesity care. But you may have some surprising ones that you haven't thought of. It's similar to a survey some researchers from the University of Manitoba developed as part of their obesity education program for frontline health professionals. So this is an evidence-based um, type of approach. You can download and review the PCP baseline survey. So again, this is included as in part of the toolkit that we're providing. Here's what to look for as you review the baseline survey results. Overall, what gaps do the primary care professionals in this training session perceive with regard to their skills to care for people with obesity? So the idea is after you administer this survey, you know, these are the things that you're going to look for um, as that survey comes back to you. Overall, what gaps do the primary care professionals in this training session perceive with regard to their professional attitudes towards people with obesity? And then overall, what gaps do the primary care professionals really see as the biggest challenges that they face in their daily practice? Thanks, Angela. So we've, we've talked about the preparation and we're going to move on to the execution. And that can include things like including opportunities uh, for the participants to practice the skills that you've taught them, also getting feedback from the participants and answering their questions. In this phase of the activity, you'll develop a slide deck, meeting format, and supporting materials that meets your learners' needs. We can use the baseline survey results to guide the content. What are the gaps? What is the purpose of the educational activity and how are we going to support evidence-based care, for example? This activity includes an extensive downloadable slide library that you can use to build your slide deck and take advantage of it. 
So don't just lecture your colleagues, include opportunities for discussion, listening, and questions. Some of our colleagues may have a good baseline knowledge and what they need is the right kind of peer mentorship and support in order to implement knowledge they may already have. Have learners try on an obesity stimulation suit and walk around the meeting area, something that other me some meetings have done to help people experience and develop maybe a better understanding of what it's like to live in a larger body. Invite a patient to speak at your group. Give perspective. I think having patient testimonials can be very important to help people to understand the benefits of obesity treatment, but also to provide a first-hand and meaningful account of how people may experience stigma as part of healthcare interactions that, while well-intentioned, may not be executed in a way that supports patient engagement uh, and chronic disease management models that are effective. Role-playing can be an effective uh, and helpful technique to demonstrate how counseling can work. And I think demonstrating your personal approach to obesity management uh, with examples that are relatable to your primary care colleagues can be very helpful. You can get audience members to play. This may be something if you have a trusted patient who is interested in educating healthcare providers, this may be something that you can role-play with somebody. And that patient can then provide a testimony to, well, how has this gone wrong for them in the past and how have healthcare providers caused them to feel a way which was not, uh, which not supportive of obesity care in general. And I think including opportunities for participants to put what they've learned into practice, kind of having a teach-back type situation can be helpful to make sure that your message is coming across and is being received and retained in a way that's going to influence practice in the way that you intend. And, you know, consider including a coffee break to encourage networking and development because so much of this is about peer mentorship and who doesn't need coffee, right? So there are a bunch of resources that have been included with this activity to really set you up for success. There's going to be a slide library, there's going to be practice aids, but also the baseline survey results and self-reflections to help support creating some of the materials that are really going to help to create the obesity practice that you think your primary care colleagues would benefit from. But also developing your own obesity management resources such as patient education brochures, websites, even apps if you're technologically minded or have friends who are, you know, lists of resources that are available in your community. There may be cooking classes at uh, local schools or at some supermarkets, for example, that may be really helpful. Recreation centers or other places that are kind of health-minded there may be an opportunity for our patients and our colleagues to create a network of interested parties that can really support a lot of the lifestyle and other changes that we are recommending and supporting for our patients who are living with obesity. The AAFP has some principles for managing uh, people who are living with obesity or managing obesity in people using evidence-based techniques. And I think what we can do is start by acknowledging and treating the whole person. We're not treating numbers on a scale. We don't treat numbers on a lab result. We treat people in clinic, right? I think we need to encourage our primary care providers uh, and people, even our own selves, to identify biases and assumptions that may impact how we interact with patients and how we may interact with each other in general. And I think engaging in these exercises that increase our self-awareness and emotional regulation uh, and making sure that we have a zero tolerance or um, a, a very kind of uh, enforceable policy around the use of stigmatizing language, both for ourselves and perhaps in, our, in the office environment that we create to support that healthy interaction with our patients and with people living with obesity uh, who may be accompanying them. And 
practicing communication styles that are supportive, there are a lot of different tools that can help to support this. For example, using the five A's by asking permission, for example, to start conversations, framing obesity as a risk factor for health, and talking about the ways in which treating obesity can long-term improve or optimize or maintain functionality, independence, and things that may be meaningful for our patients. Creating a welcoming environment within our offices, making sure that we have weight-friendly spaces with appropriate sized and weight-rated furniture, making sure that we have the right equipment in the office, be it the appropriate size blood pressure cuffs, gowns, examination tables, etc. Making sure that our office uh, offices when treating people with obesity have appropriate with doors so that people who may have mobility challenges can get in and out easily without the need for uh, creating, uh, let's say distress to someone who's living in a larger body who experiences on a daily basis the challenging challenges excuse me, of even going out of the house and trying to get healthcare. And I think pursuing lifelong learning around um, kind of weight regulation uh, can be challenging because it almost seems like every day there's a new study or a new um, uh, piece of scientific knowledge that comes out and helping to disseminate that amongst our colleagues in ways that are easily digestible, understandable, and perhaps implementable within their practice can be maybe one of the most meaningful things that we do. I think there are you know, these new current and emerging AOMs that may be rivaling bariatric surgery in terms of efficacy but I think what we need to do is still reinforce that obesity is a chronic disease. And just like treating hypertension, medications are effective and can lower and control and manage blood pressure. But when we stop blood pressure medicines, there's recurrence in hypertension. And medications and surgery, as effective as they are, are not curative for obesity. And I think we need to acknowledge that treatments work, but treatments work when they're used. And I think we need to encourage our colleagues to understand that complex physiology around obesity so that effective therapies are not withdrawn with recurrence and disease that then can create both distress for the patient, recurrence and complications of the obesity, and an opportunity for unfortunate stigmatizing uh, situations where patients are then being blamed for weight recurrence. So some tips on being a successful trainer of trainers. <laughs> Body language is so important, right? And maintaining eye contact and engagement, presenting a positive attitude um, can be very engaging because chronic disease management can be challenging. It's easy to become lost or frustrated when the results that we see in the room are not what we want, but making sure that we communicate things uh, in a way that is uh, engaging for participants in activities, speaking in a clear voice, making sure that we use appropriate nonverbal communication, such as body language and gestures, maintaining interest by creating things, um, creating uh, stories or cases uh, or situations that are relatable uh, to the people who are participating, and then also kind of dissipating confusion, like leading discussions, listening effectively, and then answering questions in a way that helps people to understand the concepts that are coming across. And I think making sure that you have a library of resources that people can refer back to. Um, as much as we like to believe that everyone's listening to everything we're saying, we, we're all multitasking and making sure that people have resources that can refer back to, to reinforce that knowledge, but then also to make sure that they have enduring materials that they may be able to use in their practice can also be really helpful. So as we move through the action plan um, in the execution phase, 
we should ask the participants to complete self-reflection tools to make sure uh, that they are aware and have a level of self-awareness with regards to where they're at with their own biases and their knowledge and other gaps and provide resources to participants uh, based on what their needs are and understanding their needs uh, through surveys and other assessment gaps can be really helpful to create meaningful information. So at the end of your activity, have the learners complete the self-reflection form. Uh, what, what will they do differently as a result of what you've taught them? And what ongoing support will they appreciate from you? Because as much as we want to believe that a one-off intervention is going to help our colleagues to start treating obesity, this is something that we need to do in an iterative way and to help to encourage growth so that we can train people to themselves become trainers, right? And so completing the self-reflection form is important. Finding out what the biggest challenges are um, to delivering evidence-based quality respectful obesity care in the area. Because by region, there may be a, let's say, a lack of dietitians. We may be practicing in a food desert, for example. So tips and tricks on how to help people to get appropriate um, lifestyle support for the recommendations we're making is going to be crucial. And so what we can also solicit for what other ideas does a group have for improving uh, respectful evidence-based management in our area, because they may have insights to kind of the local uh, uh, infrastructure that you may not as a provider in that area too. And so how as I can, as an obesity specialist, best provide ongoing support to use a primary care professional as you treat your patients living with obesity is a really important question because unique practices may have unique needs and we can be resources to help support evidence-based obesity care. So how to complete the self-reflection uh, worksheet um, at the conclusion of the activity require learners to complete the self-reflection form. It includes uh, needs because needs and resources may vary, so their answers may vary too. You can use this as an opportunity uh, to brainstorm with learners to help them come up with plans that are practical for them within their practice environments and within their patient population. But also remember to obtain copies of the plans so that you can touch base uh, with the people who you're training in the future to see what barriers have they had to implementing the plans that they identified that would be helpful for them. Um, so the self-reflection worksheet um, can be downloaded with the other resources uh, to the left of the screen here. You'll be able to find uh, links to them. And on the worksheet, there are blank spaces for each question to allow open-ended responses rather than forcing people into categorical responses that may not be practical or appropriate. And this is kind of a, a great brainstorming activity to get good usable information from people who are participating uh, in the event with you. So how do we use the results from the self-reflection worksheet? So it should address all uh, many of the factors um, that research suggests improves the process of obesity care. That includes healthcare provider attitudes, the clinical environment or infrastructure of the physical surroundings of the medical office, for example, the attitudes of other non-clinical, non non-provider staff, um, professional knowledge about treatments for obesity, but also familiarity with kind of the resources to overcome these challenges as well. I think we need to remember that the most convincing answers to problems are the ones we come up with ourselves. And that goes not just for our colleagues who are trying to train, but also for our patients in the office as we move towards treating obesity with them. And last but not least, thank you so much, Jamie, for that, is the follow-up, right? What are you going to do in follow-up? In follow-up, uh, you're going to want to follow up with your uh, primary care colleagues to provide ongoing support, as you mentioned, to the participants after the activity and use the feedback to refine or extend the next training workshop. Following up is key to sustaining lasting changes in practice.
Here are some key takeaways of our session today. Obesity cannot be managed solely by obesity specialists. We can teach primary care professionals how to improve the quality of care they provide to people with obesity. This is our mission moving forward. Obesity stigma is pervasive among clinicians. Obesity specialists are well positioned to change the hearts and minds of our colleagues all over the country so that our patients with obesity can, be, can receive evidence-based obesity care. Jamie, are there any points you'd like to add? Absolutely. You know, I just wanted to highlight what you just said about weight bias and obesity stigma. I think it's not only pervasive among clinicians, but society in general. And our patients with obesity may have had very negative experiences when trying to seek health care for their weight. And I think it's important for us to create that environment where they feel supported and are engaged. And I think that starts by creating a healthcare office environment with their primary care clinicians that's supportive of achieving healthy weight. And so anti-obesity medications, the science and the practice of this is evolving every day. And it's almost like every week a new study comes out with a brand new medication, which is so exciting. And I think it's a wonderful time to be an obesity medicine clinician and helping our colleagues in primary care and our other subspecialty colleagues who want to treat obesity with evidence-based therapies understand the emerging evidence and practically how to deliver that care in their offices can be invaluable. And I think as obesity uh, specialists, we can become partners with our primary care uh, colleagues and also those in subspecialties to offer ongoing support and increase their chances of success in treating obesity as a chronic and complex disease that it is. So this is the end of our discussion for today. I hope you've all found the activity to be informative and helpful as you strive to develop a cohort of local primary care professionals who can help to manage people with obesity and to provide evidence-based therapies. I'd like to thank my co-chair, Dr. Angela Fitch, and encourage you to download the resources and slides from the menu on the left side of the screen. Thank you all so much. Thank you all. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XZP860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.